8 p.m. It's the Shop Stewards Corner here on Metro FM Talk. And uh, this evening, we talk about the national minimum wage. Now, uh, uh, many of you would know the uh, National Minimum Wage Commission recommending a CPI plus 1% increase in the national minimum wage, which takes it to 23 rand per hour. And uh, I guess the 1st of January of this year would have been the third year uh, that uh, the national minimum wage has been in operation. And uh, over the course of the weekend, uh, Chief Economist at Alexander Forbes and Fellow of uh, Economic Research uh, Southern Africa, ERSA, uh, Isaiah Mshanga, penned a piece saying higher minimum wage hinder efforts to cut unemployment. And uh, he joins me now on the line alongside Dominic Brown uh, from the Alternative Information and Development Center to talk about minimum wages and uh, I guess his views on uh, the impact they have on employment. Uh, Makwabo, good evening to you and also good evening to you, uh, Dominic, and welcome, gentlemen. Good evening, I have on and the listeners. Dominic, are you there evening. as well? Evening, I have on and uh, Thank you for the invitation and good evening to the listeners. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Isaiah, let me start off with you. Um, and I guess there's a few sort of ideas and threads in your argument here, but maybe two that I want to pick up on and uh, maybe just hear uh, some of your thoughts on. The one is, you know, you argue that. Um, uh, I guess there's this relationship uh, or, well, there isn't consensus in the literature around the impact of minimum wages on employment. But the second point you make is that, you know, ideally let people go and freely contract, get into uh, uh, whatever arrangements with employers uh, and they can bargain once they're in there. Maybe expand on that. Look, I think uh, if, if you look in the current uh, labor market, we have a high unemployment rate close to 35%, the official one. If you look at youth, it's over 50%. Mm. If you take 15 to 24-year-olds, 70% and above. That is uh, the current situation. It doesn't look as if it's going to abate anytime soon. If you also take the context of COVID-19 that has decimated a lot of businesses, particularly small, medium enterprises, that, you know, uh, has one of the largest shares in terms of employment in the in the total economy. 1.4 million jobs that are yet to be recovered from the 2.3 million that were lost in the second quarter of 2020. Now, that is the, the context. And if you take a futuristic look, by 2050, we would have 75 million people in the country, 23 million youth, and 28 million of, you know, 35 to 65 years old would need to generate significant amount of jobs in this, uh, you know, uh, the, the science that will be formed, they would need to be able to absorb, mm. you know, that increasing labor force. Now, how do we do it uh, if we, we have you know, minimum wages that might be restrictive, particularly for small, medium enterprises? Mm. So my point really is to say, over the last 27 years, or particularly can take from 1996 with the labor laws uh, that came into play, we have not been able to reduce the unemployment rate substantially. So perhaps it's time to relook at our labor policies, mm. starting with the minimum wage, and say perhaps it might result in different outcomes. Well, so sure. far, what we have has not helped, yeah. has not resulted in a different outcome, particularly for those that are outside of the labor market, sure. not necessarily for those that are in employment. Isaiah, maybe just a quick question on that. Uh, and I like that you say certainly from 96 is your comparison point. But I mean, if you, if you even go a bit earlier, 
uh, certainly so post Second World War and maybe post, you know, the Republic in South Africa, you, you've always had relatively high, you know, levels of unemployment. I mean, if you think about, you know, even in the 70s, uh, the levels of unemployment we had here would be seen as crisis levels uh, on the part of many people. And even then, the overwhelming majority of, of African and black workers, uh, in many cases, weren't even seen as workers. Uh, so they didn't have bargaining rights, didn't have access to, you know, any training. There was a, a you know, a, a very particular form of labor market uh, characterized by all of these things. And yet, even in that context, you still had un- high unemployment. Uh, what would you say to that? But by no means am I saying this is a silver bullet to solving the unemployment problems. There are many others. Uh, you know, other reasons why the labor market is not functional, why businesses are not particularly dynamic, uh, you know, including some regulations that come from the state, import permits, licensing, uh, and, and the provision of infrastructure in different, you know, areas of the country. They do contribute in making the business environment less dynamic and therefore less willing to absorb labor. Mm. So it's not a silver bullet. So, so wait, one Isaiah. component that, yeah. that is meant to, to spark a debate sure. so that we can look at a broader labor market policies uh, uh, as far as they can contribute mm. to hindering job creation for those sure. that are outside of the labor market. So, so Isaiah, I mean, let me maybe pose the question a bit differently. Um, you still had very high levels of unemployment in South Africa even before the national minimum wage came into effect. And I guess seemingly the data suggests, uh, you know, some work by Charles Simpkins and others uh, suggests that you had very high levels of unemployment, even in, you know, the 60s, 70s, the 80s, where you didn't have any minimum wage regulation of any considerable form that captured, you know, the overwhelming majority of working people. Um, so so why, why would the reversal of this particular instrument, I guess, lead us to different outcomes? When even when you didn't have it in the labor market, you still had the same issues. So we could we could say you know then the skills training was not particularly open. Uh, the doors of learning have been opened, I'm sure. Uh, you know, and then you also have you know a, an increasing number of young people coming through our schooling system, which was not the case back then. Now we can no longer use particularly that uh, we can no longer use the reason that. You know, we, we don't have people that are that have cosmetic qualifications. We have an increasing number of those young people that have some form of you know education, though it's still lacking uh, as far as the quality. We can still you know, we can we can make that debate to say it's quite different to the period that you referred to when educational opportunities were closed. So for that youth, they come with some you know form of training. Mm. That makes them to to to, to end, That makes them to be ready to enter the labor market, but we still have some constraints. Okay. Let's pause there and, and we'll come back to the issue of bargaining. And uh, after this brief break, we'll also bring in Dominic Brown from the Alternative Information and Development Center, joined by Isaiah Mshanga, a chief economist at Alexander Forbes, and uh, Dominic Brown from the AIDC. We'll continue with our Shop Stewards Corner segment after this. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's the Shop Stewards Corner here on Metro FM Talk. Joined on the line uh, to talk about uh, the uh, national minimum wage by Isaiah Mklanga, uh, uh, Chief Economist at Alexander Forbes. Also joined by Dominic Brown from the Alternative Information and Development Centre. And uh, Dominic, let me bring you in here. Uh, you would have certainly seen the piece uh, 
that uh, Isaiah was referring to and also uh, I guess would be familiar uh, with the national minimum wage, what it intends to achieve, uh, least of all at the bottom end of the distribution. Some of your thoughts uh, insofar as what uh, Isaiah has raised, but also I guess um, in your own reading and assessment uh, of the national minimum wage. Thanks, Sayabonga. So, um, my whole understanding of Isaiah's thesis is that the big unemployment problem we have in this country is because people and workers are getting too high wages. Um, and that pushing up the national minimum wage will actually exacerbate the unemployment problem we have in this country. Now, whilst I agree that we have a problem of unemployment and structural unemployment and that we need to urgently address it, I fundamentally disagree with both desires diagnosis of the problem and his prognosis for it. Now, in South Africa, we have a low-wage regime, actually, which means that most workers in this country, besides being potential workers, besides being unemployed, actually get paid poverty wages. Now, if you look at the national, national minimum wage in comparison to the median wage, and maybe it's worth saying what the median wage is. It's the average, not the average, the middle, mm. uh, which is which is different to taking the total wages of people working and divided by the number of people who are working. And as we all know, the national minimum wage is now say, at 3,500. When we look at the median wage, it's estimated to be about 13,000 rand per month. So already the national minimum wage is well below uh, the median wage in this country, which is some indication of the level of income disparity. Moreover, I think when you look at the number of people in the country who have less income than the upper bound poverty level, which is 1,335 rand per month, you're looking at more than half the adult population. So effectively, what you're seeing is that most of the people in this country are unable to afford to get basic needs, including food, electricity, water, housing, education, health care, and so on and so forth. Most people are effectively excluded from the economy. And this is because uh, most people are either unemployed or, if they are employed, they are underpaid in a big way. Now, we're seeing that this relates a different uh, understanding of the problem mm. uh, to what desire maps out. And for us, the problem is rooted, as you indicated, Ayabonga, that the issue of the uh, unemployment crisis in this country is a long-standing one. Mm. And even um, halfway through the pandemic last year, when the quarterly labor force survey, um, third quarter results were released, um, it indicated that more than 75% of unemployed were in long-term unemployment. They've been in unemployment before the so, pandemic. So, Dominic, um, I mean, if, if yeah. people are, have been structurally unemployed, right, being yeah. unemployed even 12 months preceding the onset exactly. of the lockdowns, yeah. um, I mean, why then do we not do what Isaiah is suggesting that many East Asian countries have done, which is, you know, allow people to come in at whatever wages they'd like to come in, if indeed that's going to lead to them being absorbed. And then once they're inside the tent, 
you know, they'll be able to bargain for higher wages. I wonder because this view is based on the idea that you have a supply-side problem, that there isn't sufficient number of people mm. will be willing to come in at the level of national minimum wage and work with sufficient skills to be able to do the work. Mm. Now, you and I both know that we can go around the country right now and we can easily find thousands of people who are bricklayers, plumbers, electricians, people who are able to do the kind of work that's required to build the country that we need. We have a mass housing crisis. Are we saying we don't have enough people to build houses? Well, we're saying I, there's I a... Doubt that. Yeah, yeah, I mean... So, so I don't think mm. there's a supply-side problem, yeah. number one. I don't think that there's a problem of underskilled workers. Yes, there's, there's always possibilities of upskilling, mm. right? Uh, I mean, for instance... Um, there's many people who can be within the extractive industry, of sure. uh, coal mining um, and other mining industries who could be trained to undertake different skills. Mm. But, I mean, we have a number of unemployed graduates in this country, people who have studied, people with skills, capacities. We also have a number of people who have been employed, who have been retrained and are, can no longer find work. So it's mm. not a supply-side problem. The problem lies in the fact that we haven't had mass employment creation policies in this country, and to argue that the problem is either a supply-side problem or a problem with the demand for too high wages seems to be disingenuous when we look at um, what's actually happening in the sure, country, sure. the actual economic situation, when we look at the situation in terms of wages um, and the facts. Okay. Dominic, hold the line there for me. Let me bring you in there, Isaiah. I mean, Dominic's suggesting here that we also have a demand-side problem and that labor demand hasn't shifted in a fashion that is commensurate with the growth, you know, in the working-age population. Um, but also, I guess, you know, implied in that is, you know, that uh, uh, the type of accumulation path or even, you know, the path to profitability for many firms, you know, might not require as many warm bodies as it might have done before. I mean, I, if you go to the banks, they're a typical example of that. You don't see as many bank tellers as you would have seen, nor do you see as many branches as you would have. Indeed, uh, I think there are valid points that are being raised there. But I think if we take the perspective that small businesses are quite are responsible for the majority of job growth in any given economy, and small businesses do not have the type of balance sheet of big firms. There is an argument that also says if wages are set at a level that is slightly prohibitive for them to, to absorb an increasing number of people, they will opt not to, to, to increase, especially if it's com- combined with the difficulty to change headcounts when the economic cycle changes then it means they are unlikely to hire new entrants because they want to protect themselves or when the business cycle change, they're not going to be impacted or even go out of business. So the, the, the debate here or the point that I wanted to raise is not about those that are within the labor market. It is about those that are outside of the labor market. How do we make it easier for them or much more conducive for them mm. to get into the employment? That's the debate. Isaiah? But I guess... Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I mean, I, I, I want to follow up with a question just on that part. Uh, no, no, wait, 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 Dominic, I just want to follow up with something there. I mean, 
from where you're sitting, what would you see as the level of subsistence for everybody? Because I guess there's a sense around how low can wages go. I mean, uh, the argument you're making is that people must accept whatever work is given, get, acquire skill, and then be able to bargain. But we also know that many, you know, uh, of the low wage and vulnerable sectors of the economy also happen to be the same sectors that have the lowest levels of union representation lowest levels of you know, uh, collective bargaining um, and effectively unilateral determination of wages because of the skewed bargaining power towards employers. There's more people who have no skill who are looking for work uh, than potentially, I guess, you know, there, there are employers who are looking to employ them. Look, I think it's, uh, at, at this point in time, it's difficult to put a number to it. But I guess, uh, you know, a lot of the respondents to my column has always been people that are in the labor market, not people that are outside of the labor, labor market that would say, I, I would not, you know, take a particular wage level. I would rather sit at home and not take a particular level of, of, of wage. It's not them. It is people that are inside the labor market that feel protected mm. that are advancing such an argument. So you're saying, Isaiah, there's no reservation wages? That if, if I'm paying 500 for transport, that I'll take a wage at 400 rand in a month? Look, obviously, that is a, a, an example that is difficult to, to work with because it leaves someone without no, any. Well, I mean, I, I'm using small numbers. I'm using small numbers so, just for ease of, of um, I guess, illustration. But effectively, we know yeah. in South Africa, many people spend a considerable amount of money on transport costs. I mean, if you live further from where opportunities are, you're paying a lot more disproportionately in your income than you, than you would. But if you're working a low-wage job, surely there would be jobs where I can't take it just by virtue of the fact that I'll pay for transport. Which is where the state needs to come and solve for the transport and also solve for the education, for health. We can't lump all these problems into one avenue of the economy. We need to be solving all these so that when we address a specific issue such as mm. wages, people do have efficient and cheap transport using trains. People do have access to education, which the state pays for. People do have access to health, which the state also pays for. Virtually, all of these things should be free because they are budgeted for. Yes. Do- Dominic, let me bring you in there. No, I think I think Isaiah makes some good points towards the end, Ayabonga, uh, which I would like to circle back to. But if I may, may I raise a couple of points? Yeah, sure. Okay. So number one, I want to start with um, where Isaiah started with the idea of small, medium, uh, small and medium enterprises and how they don't have the employment capacity of big businesses or government. Absolutely. And that's why when you have a mass unemployment crisis, you need to have mass government employment programs, and I'm going to come back to this in, the, in relation to education and health provision and other services, which is the raises. Mm. So I think fundamentally, we need to have a critical role for government to play, and there's also a way that government can be an employer of last resort, which I'll come to in a bit as well. The second quick point I want to make is that I think it's important to problematize how when you have both uh, a fiscal contractionary uh, context where government is cutting spending, it creates a context in which the private sector does the same, particularly in relation to wages, okay? This has, and I think as I and we both know, has effects, uh, negative multiplier effects in that it uh, snowballs a contractionary often environment, especially when government is a major contributor to GDP, 
And when you have a contracting environment, when there's smaller aggregate demand in the local economy, the impact of that is that there's less employment opportunities that's created downstream. Alternatively, if government's spending more, spending more on education, healthcare, improving wages, working as an employee of last resort, saying we're going to employ people who are going to be contributing our housing program, contributing to um, uh, being barefoot plumbers, looking where there's um, leaks in the water pipes, removing alien vegetation mm. from our river streams. This can create jobs as well as contribute to addressing climate change, but it's going to require a large amount of spending. The next thing I want to say is that so wages is not a cost on the, on the economy. It contributes to buying power, which can help to boost the economy and boost demand over the medium term. Mm. I think we must also situate the issue of unemployment and locate this again in this current context in the sense that in the terms of the macroeconomy, mm. and we're trying to understand the industry of South Africa, we see a tendency towards capital-intensive industries, sure. particularly in relation to the mining and the addiction to the mineral energy complex. So we can think about what more labor and employment-intensive industries, particularly in, in relation to addressing the problem of climate change. This is a macroeconomic problem and a demand-side yeah. problem, not a supply-side problem. Dominic, maybe just a quick one yeah. there on, on that comment. I mean, um, yeah. I think on the demand side, you make um, an important point that, you know, jobs are often uh, an outcome not just of uh, expansions in, in production, but also reinvestment of profits <coughs> and all of that type of stuff. Um, but yeah. what, what, would, what do you say to Isaiah's point that, you know, he's confining a lot of what he's arguing here? to small business. So, so there's a firm yeah. size question here and he's saying those are the guys who are more likely to be impacted by any marginal changes in, in the national minimum wage because you know they don't have the big balance sheet of the bigger guys. But they are not the ones who are the main employers mm. and the ones who are going to be able to employ the, mass, the vast majority of people. That's true, yeah. So whilst they may be important, I think small and medium enterprises will benefit in a context where there's much greater levels of aggregate demand within mm. the economy, where there's much levels of investment directed towards um, the reindustrialization of the economy, through which more um, local businesses can operate in. Mm. Uh, so, and if you think about investing um, in the rural economy, uh, especially um, where there's much more closer linkages between producers and consumers of goods. This can in and of itself spur local uh, economies. So I think that there's lots of possibilities, but if you want to deal with a case where you almost have 13 million unemployed people, mm. uh, small and medium enterprise is not going to be able to Absolutely. address that fundamentally. It's a structural issue. Um, so it has limitations. Okay. So, 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 so you I want us to pause here for a second. Wait, 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 Isaiah. Um, make the point you wanted to make. I also wanted to follow up, I guess, on your point around bargaining because you didn't respond to my question there that uh, many of the low-wage workers who are covered by the national minimum wage who've had their real wages rise as a result of the introduction of the minimum wage also happen to be the workers who have the worst bargaining power in relation to their employers. So, so the assumption that, you know, once they're in, they can bargain their way to much higher wages um, is one that I'm battling, I guess, to grapple with. All right. So, 
two points that I wanted to, to make a follow-up. If you look in terms of the growth cycle of firms, large firms can't grow exponentially and increase headcount uh, at an exponential rate. It's small firms over the long term that grow to become big firms, and over that growth curve, they also have a larger change in their employment than we'd experience with large firms. But, that but surely there's assumptions one. you're making there yeah, around but, factor intensity. So as they grow, exactly. do they become more capital intensive, which is the point that Dominic was making, that structurally you have an economy which is skewed towards more capital intensity? Indeed, because in part the labor laws are too restrictive, so they opt to invest in capital that can bargain and that can disrupt business operations. But the other point I wanted to make is really about the, you know, the demand in the economy to say, you know, more demand in the economy is going to grow the, you know, the economy. We do have an economy that imports quite a lot of, you know, light manufactured products, such that whatever demand that we, we, we can stimulate, it simply just to export it to other countries because we don't produce the stuff that we consume. So the idea that, you know, here we're talking about modelers, there is significant leakage in the economy that happens. Sure. And if you just look at the current okay. account deficit, the numbers are there to speak for themselves. Sure. So I've got, gentlemen, so I've got an ad coming up now. So, so I think I hear your point there and there's some convergence there just on the need for industrialization, as you say, Isaiah, because if, if demand increases and it's not met by local production, there's a lot of leakage of money. Um, but I think to, to the earlier point, and we can come back to it maybe after this brief break, to the earlier point you were making around uh, what um, incentivizes the capital intensity, I th- yeah, uh, we can come back to that one maybe after this. Yeah, 17 minutes it is before the uh, top of the hour. I'm in discussion with Dominic Brown from the Alternative uh, Information and Development Center, the AIDC, also joined by Chief Economist at Alexander Forbes, Isaiah Mshanga. And uh, just before we went to the break, I guess, Isaiah, you're making two points there. The one was uh, you were arguing the capital intensity of uh, South African production as firms grow, um, you know, using more capital, substituting away from labor is a response to, I guess, what you're seeing as rigid labor laws introduced in 1996. Um, I I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I think the South African economy, certainly in my reading, and uh, I mentioned the Simpkins paper I was talking about earlier on and many other reports, would show you that the capital intensity actually predates what is seen by many as restrictive labor policy. I mean, you had capital intensity in this economy even when African workers weren't even seen as workers and you could pay them anything. Um, so, so I think the capital intensity maybe arises out of other um, you know, state action far from the, any minimum wage or any progressive you know, labor legislation. Uh, but let me allow you to, to make your comment there and then we'll, uh, you know, just some closing remarks and reflections and then we'll also uh, allow Dominic the same and then we'll have to conclude our discussion. So on the first one, uh, Dominic made a point that small businesses don't even have an ability to generate a substantial amount of jobs. If you, if you look at the International Labour Organization, research, it will tell you that, uh, you know, about 70% of employment worldwide is generated by small medium enterprises, not by big firms. And here in South Africa? So here in South Africa, that number is, is about 60%. So it's not that different from what you would get in other similar sized you know, countries, uh, countries. Even from a GDP point of view, 
60% or more is generated by small medium enterprises. So they do have a, a disproportionate contribution into, into the economy. If you were to look in the African continent, the informal sector in particular contributes a big proportion of, of economic activity. Yeah. Um, but, but we that is a yeah. altogether. So we, the point mm-hmm. here is small friends have a central role in how we solve the unemployment crisis. And we need to be able, we need to, 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 to have a conducive environment for them to thrive, for them to absorb more okay. people into the labor market. Look, your point in terms of uh, minimum wages as five people that are in the labor market valid. That's not my central argument. My central argument is to, is to, in, to include those that, are, those that are outside of the labor market to make sure that they have jobs no, Isaiah, and they can get some. Isaiah, the, I think the, the question I was asking was a key part of your thesis is that allow people to take whatever wages they can get because they're out of a job. And once they get necessary skills, they are then able to bargain for those wages. And I'm arguing that the institutional mechanisms that would allow them to bargain for that are not there in many forms of low-wage employment. And you see this in the data. Uh, Unilateral determination of wages for low-wage work, I mean, domestic workers, security guards, many of those were petrol attendants, many of those workers have very little access to collective bargaining, very little access, you know, to claiming all of these bargaining mechanisms that we think might be open to them once they're in and, and get some skill. That's where we need to experiment with what sort of legislation we can impose once people are inside. But for first-time entrants, we may need to relax so that people get into jobs. Okay. Dominic? I am only a guest. We're going to run out of time. So let me start by saying it's always great chatting to you and I hope for many more discussions. Uh, Isaiah, it was good chatting to you too and there's definitely areas where we agree, but I think ultimately we disagree on what ultimately lies behind the unemployment problem in this country and how to deal with it. I would like to say that I think the reason why we rely on a capital-intensive or increasingly going to a capital-intensive industry is once again a macroeconomic problem. Mm. It's a reliance, an over-reliance on a declining mineral energy complex and an export-oriented approach and growth model where we need to attract foreign direct investments um, and export goods, predominantly commodities, which we extract. To extract today, we have to go deeper and deeper into the mines. To do that, it's cheaper to use technology than people in the mining sector. That's why we're seeing greater capital intensivity. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, if you want to deal with the unemployment crisis in this country, uh, small and medium enterprises can play a role. Collective bargaining can play a role. But ultimately, we need to break from a system where we have large amounts of budget cuts, this huge dependence on the global market, particularly a dependence on FDI's portfolio investment and export-oriented growth. We need to break from that system, reindustrialize our economy around a low-carbon strategy where government acts as the employer of last resort, employing a huge amount of people at a living wage, which is probably three or four times the national minimum wage in this country, that can give people the buying power to contribute to increasing productivity and boosting the South African economy. So those are the types of measures we need in the medium term. Now, of course, 
that's going to take a process. In the medium term, I mean, sorry, in the short term, we need to introduce a basic income grant. And by the way, Aya Bonga, I don't know if you're aware, but in fact, over the last 20 years, labor market regulations have actually um, become less uh, strict. It's easier to hire and fire than 20 years ago. And over the same 20-year period, we've seen rising income inequality, where the poor are getting lower incomes than the rich. And at the same time, we've seen rising unemployment rates. So the very solution that Isaiah is offering to the crisis is exactly what we've done for two decades, and it hasn't worked. Then, when we look at the problem of wages, see, there's a lot of issues that need to be unpacked with this. We see a problem of profit shifting and wage evasion. Mm. Now, we hear a lot of the time... Dominic? People... Dominic, yeah. hey, my brother... I'm smack back Quixing. out of time. No, Quixing. no, Dominic, we're going to have to leave it here, my brother. I really wish we had a bit more time. Like 10 years ago, Ayabonga. Yeah, I wish... Rock, your operators, demanded 12,500. I wish we right? had a bit more time. Dominic, we're going to have to leave it there, my brother. Um, but okay. I think you raised some very important points. And uh, Isaiah, uh, yourself raising some important points, by no stretch of the imagination is this debate over. Uh, but uh, suffice to say that, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of you also commenting on this particular one and... Um, we're going to have to leave it here for tonight, but uh, just briefly through some of the tweets there, Bulalani Mkwiana saying, interesting to hear what Isaiah is saying. Uh, still, you can't have a high minimum wage and uh, we should be focusing on opportunities for investment and industrialization to create jobs and not to enslave our people. Uh, Buddy Wells saying record current account surpluses over the last two years mean that to work a share of productivity gains is too low and local consumption is also too low. And uh, yeah, please ask Isaiah Mshanga what stops the RAND from issue, RAND issuing state from issuing RANDs to productively employ more people in ways that bring down private sector costs while demand is too low and inflation is pushed by costs. Yeah, some of the tweets coming through there on uh, that particular conversation. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear some of your uh, perspectives on this. Uh, and uh, Matlamini, they're saying on the bargaining point, the informal sector operates from a take-it-or-leave-it stance. And Khotats uh, Olipuko, they're saying SMMEs are the way to solve current employment issues. Higher taxes on imports are also required. And um, yeah, calling there, I guess, uh, uh, for what many also decry and uh, saying, secondly, the market, uh, the labor market there has a negative view on the abilities of African employees to be able to do the work. And uh, he says we need to be honest with ourselves. The labor market is flooded with people that have retired effectively denying jobs to the next generation. So calling for generational mix in the labor market.